This week, we discuss domestic abuse, which may be triggering for some of our listeners. Hello and welcome to the Independent Mums Handbook podcast. I'm your host, Laura Carey. This podcast series interviews mothers and discusses their experience of motherhood. Each week, we'll interview a different woman and hear her story. We'll hear from my mum, new mums, thinking about it mums, nearly their mums and seasons mums. This week, we have Claire. Claire, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Hello, um, I'm Claire, I'm 44, I've got um, four children, um, 26, 17, 15 and 13 and I'm married, I've my 20th wedding anniversary coming up this year, which is oh, very wow. exciting, still here, hanging in there, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's me, I work as um, a practitioner for an early intervention service so um, we work with young people that are primary school age and secondary school age and I mentor them so that's me really in a nutshell. Oh brilliant we'll have to pick up on that um, a bit later because I'm really interested in the mentoring. Definitely. Okay so your children are you know quite a bit older so your eldest is how old? Yes, I've got uh, my son's 24 and um, he uh, he doesn't live at home anymore. He moved out last December, which was a bit of a shock to, to the system. Um, and then I've got 17, 15 and 13. So my 17 year old is doing his A-levels at school. And then I've got 15-year-old doing his GCSEs at school. And then my 13-year-old daughter, so I've got three older boys, and then my daughter, um, I homeschool her. So working, um, I work 28 hours a week and I homeschool. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's busy. <laughs> you've got a pretty full life you've got there. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I can't stand not being... Yeah, I can't stand being still. I'm not good at being still. So I don't know whether... So my daughter's got ADHD and autism, so she's just had a diagnosis recently and I'm waiting for my ADHD referral. So just to throw that in the mix on top of everything else, you know, just to keep us on our toes, we've got that to deal with as well. But actually, do you know, it's it's never it's never done in this house. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty full house. Yeah. Okay, so... Let's take it back to the beginning, yeah. um, before you had children. Mm-hmm. So what kind of person were you before you had the kids? Like, what were you doing? Were you working? What's, your, what's the background of Claire? I, um, I str- well, for me, from the beginning, um, loved primary school, um, junior school, loved it, infant school. Uh, got to secondary school, went to an all-girls convent school, secondary school, and yeah it just wasn't me at all I struggled massively at school looking back on it now it was probably a combination of ADHD and me just pushing and pushing and pushing away from any kind of control or you know I look back now I was actually I got excluded smoking in school uniform risky behavior I was my mum's worst nightmare out of all four I'm one of four and out of my my family I was 
the youngest, probably the most challenging one. <laughs> my my mum, I think my mum takes great joy in the fact that I'm a mum and have to go through all of this in my teens now. <laughs> because yeah, I was challenging. But as soon as I left school, I went to college, which was so different. I studied fashion at college and you had complete autonomy. You had control over whether you did your work on time. It was a very, very, it was a, really intense course that I did but really relaxed in the fact that if you wanted to mess it up that was down to you so I wasn't used to that I was used to being at a school where I was told what to do where to go what to wear how to do it and was really quite controlled and structured then I went to college and I was like oh my god this is brilliant but then I, I struggled in keeping deadlines and things like that so there's elements of it I loved um, but yeah. it was a massive learning curve college um, left college and went to work in um, London for a little while. Um, at a, there was a design house up there called Chatters in London and I went to work up there. But the environment, working with all women just didn't work for me because it was oh. really competitive. Um, and I didn't like, I'm like, I'm quite, a, I, I love nurture and I love like, being kind to people. And if you can help people, then help people. But unfortunately it's quite a, it was quite a bitchy environment so I was just like mm. so I went into um so I come away from then I went into retail management so I was working I became the um deputy manager at mother care because I used to be a big mother care in Brentwood and I was a deputy mm. manager in there um and then I became the um assistant manager in a shoe shop which was literally next door Stead and Simpson in Brentwood and mm. While I was at college, when I was 17, I um, met my ex-partner and at 19, I was pregnant. So, yeah, I was working pregnant, like literally standing up in a shoe shop all day pregnant. And oh. yeah, so that was me at 19. And then um, that was with Mitchell, but I had him early. I actually went into early labour. I went into labour at... 31 weeks and six days so he was nine weeks nearly nine weeks early so they didn't know whether he'd survive or not mm. so um thankfully he did he was in um, intensive care for a week and he's stubborn like his mum after seven days he pulled his own ventilator out of his mouth with his little tiny fingers and started breathing yeah. on his own so yeah that was incredible so yeah, that was my journey to motherhood, 19. So, wow. my, yeah, my time between leaving school and college was very short before yeah. I became a mum. But he was planned. I wanted him. I wanted a, I wanted a baby. That's what I wanted to do. Um, that's what my ex-partner wanted at the time. And, yeah, that's how my journey to motherhood began. Okay. So how did you meet Dad? Uh, and when I was at college, he was friends with someone at my college and me and my best friend went out for a drink with them um, into the uh, the castle pub in Brentwood. And mm. yeah, I was just, I, it started from there really. And I was with him till I was 21. So five years I was with him and then um, I split up because sadly he... Yeah, he wasn't very nice. I've become a victim of domestic violence and uh, that ended after five years. So it was my beginning of motherhood. When I look back on it now, compared to how I am as a mum with my three that I, you know, my other three, mm. it was amazing, but like completely different. 
totally different because it was with a different partner my situation was different um so I, I am a different person completely different from what I was back then I was very young very naive put up with a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have put up with didn't really have any boundaries um lived quite fearfully for five years but now then then I got married and my, met my partner my husband now got married and have had a very different journey a very very different journey with the other three because I was I'd stay at home mum you know we had a we bought a house so there was much more security much more um safety so yeah very very different so it's been I've got a very colorful past (laughs) I want to go back to that because you're 19 you've met your partner when you were how old I was 17, probably about 17 when I met him. Okay. Um, so both planned to have a baby at 19. How did that come about? Like, how did you know that you were ready at 19? Um, you think you were ready? I don't know. I probably wasn't ready at all. Mm. I probably thought I was ready, but I probably wasn't ready for the reality of it. If it wasn't for my mum and dad um, being my support network when it all kind of went wrong, it would have been much, much harder, but I'm so lucky. I've got such an amazing family around me. So I don't I don't really know how it got there. Probably just being very young and very, you know, thinking that, you know, I was invincible and rebellious. I moved out when I was 17. I moved out home when I was 17, which I should never have done because yeah. I, I was living in an adult world without knowing what it was like to be an adult. Yeah, my mum was bringing, still bringing me food shopping around because I wasn't eating properly because we had to pay the rent. And I lived in a shared house with my partner at the time. Um, and there was three other people living there, or two other people living there. And yeah, it wasn't ideal. But to me, that was that, that was normal. It was just like, oh, that's just what I'm doing. And I was so stubborn. I'm like, I'm going to make it work. I'm not going to go back home because then my parents are going to be like, I told you so, which I, they've never done. So I had this thing mm-hmm. in my head that they were going to be, oh, you know, we told you you shouldn't do this, but they've never done that. They've supported me through literally every decision I've ever made, whether it's good, bad or not. You know, they're, they've always stood by me and supported me even when for the five years of relationship knowing it was toxic and knowing it wasn't good to keep me close they always supported me rather than interfered they think you know they I knew that they knew that they didn't approve of it they didn't ideally of course you don't want your child to have a child that young and when they're not financially stable and but I was going to do it anyway there was I was one of the I am one of those people if I want to do something I'm going to do it so and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing I don't know sometimes it's good sometimes it doesn't work out quite so good so yeah Yeah. it was just a decision it was just something that we just decided to do um thinking obviously we're going to be together forever and in my naivety thinking it was going to be a happy ever after because I know I had nothing to compare it to it was a really toxic Mm. relationship but because it was my first serious relationship I thought that was normal I thought that level of control was normal and that level of dominance was normal and it wasn't until I came away from that relationship that I realized actually that's not what life's about life isn't about Mm. wanting to control someone so yeah that's how it kind of got to and then after five years it progressively got worse and worse and then it got more and more controlling and more and more physical um Mm. and then I was like this isn't this cannot maintain itself because 
I'm going to end up getting really, really hurt continuously or I'll end up dead. So it's, mm. I had to get out of it. So it was hard. It was really hard being on my own. Being a single mum was really, really hard. But I say sometimes it's, it's really strange because I think it's the most scary but the most empowering thing I've ever done is stepping out into a world on my own, having a child on my own with no financial support from my ex-partner and no emotional support and hardly any contact with, you know, he didn't see him. So yeah. it was scary, but it was the making of me. It was the best thing I ever did was step away because it allowed me to grow as a person and find out who I am and what I wanted out of life. And the last thing I wanted at that time was a relationship. <laughs> and then along come my husband. <laughs> so, yeah, the last thing I wanted was a relationship. But then, you know, I I actually met my husband when I was 15 originally. We we met on holiday and we were together like, child, like childhood sweethearts, like when we were like young um, on a caravan holiday. And then um, we got back in touch after... Um, and then we got back together and then that was it the rest was history we were 20 years married in August oh wow that's a that's a good stint isn't it yeah <laughs> okay so yeah we covered a lot in that yeah that just <laughs> so let's let's go back again right okay. going back you're pregnant how were your mum and dad when you told them that you were pregnant as normal supportive they were supportive, you know, they were, was it ideally what they wanted with that person? No, you know, mm. but at the end of the day, they love me, they want me close, they want what's best for me, so they were there for me, they were amazing, yeah, they saw the whole way through it. My, my When Mitchell was born and he was in neonatal, um, mm. his, his um, dad wasn't kind of immersed into that kind of going to the hospital and stuff so it was my mum that came with me every single day because you get to um obviously there's no visiting hours when your baby's in neonatal you can stay there all day so mm. I didn't drive at the time so me and my mum would get on the train to Heldwood every single day to the hospital and spend all day with him until he was allowed home a month later so it was a long month so we were in, literally lived in the neonatal unit for a month so my mum and dad were amazing they were they were absolutely amazing my dad was so frightened to hold Mitchell when he was first born because his hands my dad's like massive he's like built like a brick poo house <laughs> so literally he would hold he would like so tiny he was too frightened to hold him because his hands were so massive and Mitchell was like tiny tiny he was three pounds six when he was born he was tiny yeah so how was the pregnancy um yeah it's good was it I, I, there was no reason for me to go into early labor at all they oh. didn't give me any reason they just said it's um spontaneous labor and it happens sometimes and my pregnancy was fine I was like because I was young you know it was like oh god my my subsequent pregnancies were completely different so when I was young I was like oh I can handle this but it was strange because I was still, my friends were still very young and they were still going out partying and stuff. And I would still kind of go out with them and stand there with my lemonade in a wine glass <laughs> in the pub. <laughs> Just like, it's not quite the same, but, you know, and I lost, I some friends dropped off on the wayside when you become a mum, you know, but my real 
good friends were there constantly and I'm still friends with some of them to this day so they that kind of stood the test of time and me having a baby so young but some of them you know I think naturally they would have dropped off whether I had a baby or not but I think it made it happen a bit quicker because I couldn't go out all the time and you know mm. your life does change massively doesn't it when you become a mum so your priorities change and unfortunately if someone else's priorities aren't that they're just bored of it and they're like you know they want to go off and go out partying with people who can really party and not someone who's like oh I've got to get a taxi at 11 because I've got to get home for the babysitter <laughs> so, yeah. yeah yeah so pregnancy was good friendships you know they 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 came and went but the most important ones stayed so I, I love that about that story as you were young, like being a young mum, and you said like friends dropped off and old friends stayed, but did you manage to meet like other mums? Did you meet, did this open the door to meet other mums that were pregnant and young? No, I wasn't like an NCT mum. I wasn't one of those mums that was going to baby groups and all of that kind of stuff. I went back to work when Mitch was three months old. So it was, oh. yeah, it was just, and I lived, you know what? And also looking back on it, I lived, um, I didn't drive at the time and my ex-partner moved us to away to a different town so I was quite isolated I didn't really have the, the means of having contact and um, some of my friends who drove they come around and visited me but again it's a one-way street isn't it friendship so I wasn't able to do that and there was only a bus every four hours where I lived so again, when I look back, it was part of that control to get me away from everybody and everything. Mm. And, you know, I was quite isolated. I was on my own with Mitchell a lot of the time. We would kind of just, it was like, like my little best mate would go into town and do stuff on our own and go swimming and go to the park and do all of that. But yeah, it's it was very different from my my pregnancies and having babies with my husband now my, mm. my very early experience of motherhood was very very different it was lovely because it was just me and him and he's we're so close now still which is lovely and we've got that incredible bond but it was under a shadow because of the situation that I was in if that makes sense yeah okay so yeah we've had baby how was labor what was that like for you? I was at South End Air Show and I went into labour and I thought I had a backache. And I was like, oh, you know, uh, we'll just go back. I've got a backache. And I remember watching these planes flying over the sea and we were parked quite high up on one of the hills. And my back was hurting. I was like, oh, God, I've got a backache. But being 19, I had these boots on with these big heels. So I'm just thinking, oh, I'm just probably because I'm fat. <laughs> So I was just like, it's okay, it's probably my shoes. And I got home and this my backache was still going on. And I found the um, because obviously I've never been in labor before, so I didn't have a clue what was going on. I was nine, well, I was, I was probably 20, I was 20 when I had him. So I was like a little bit naive, didn't really know what was going on. Um, so I phoned the labor ward and they said, Oh, take have a hot milky drink and take a couple of paracetamol and go to bed. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that then. Just think you're the professionals, you know what you're doing. So yeah. I did that. And then I went to bed and I was like, oh my goodness, it's just not going. And so I phoned them back up and they were like, you need to come in, let's just check you over. And I got there and I was five centimeters dilated. So they couldn't, they couldn't stop the labor. So they gave, yeah. had these steroid, it was quite rushed. It was quite manic. So I had this steroid thing, put, uh, injection put in my leg to make his lungs develop like really quickly. So he's breathing. 
um, when I get, it was quite traumatic looking back on it, but at mm. the time you just get on with it. So it wasn't until after it really hit me after, but they just put him on me really quickly and then they whisked him away. And then I didn't see him for hours because they were working on him because I had to resuscitate him and all sorts of things like that. That thankfully I don't remember a lot of it because it was quite traumatic. Looking back, mm. I just was like deep, like totally switched off to it. Um, and then they put me in a wheelchair and took me down to the neonatal unit um, to see him. And that was the first time I really saw him, but he had obviously the ventilator in his mouth, all of the tubes and everything. You couldn't really see him. He was so tiny. Mm. He, was little, he had a little hat on and he was in an incubator um, that was donated by a West Ham player, actually. <laughs> Oh. I remember that. I remember someone telling me that some the random stuff you remember when you're quite traumatized by something. And a nurse was trying to, I think she was trying to distract me and she was telling me about how the money had been donated by West Ham players. So that's one of the memories of my labor. <laughs> Just a random thing there. <laughs> you're a supporter of West Ham now? Is that your team? No, I don't do football. No, I don't do football, oh. but I'm very grateful to whoever it was because uh, he was in the incubator for a month. So, yeah, ama- amazing things that go on in neonatal units. Like you walk out of there once they've saved your child's life and you kind of you give them a donation and you give them chocolates and flowers and you just think that's you feel so inadequate. It's like, how do you say thank you? You've just saved my child's life. So you know oh here's some chocolates and flowers doesn't really feel like enough but you know they're just like that's just what we do it's our job but yeah incredible and yeah took him home and it used to take me hours to do my food shopping because he was so tiny that Mm. everybody would stop and be like oh my goodness and you know especially elder people like older people would say to me oh I have my child like 25 years you know years and years ago and they're like 25 or they're 40 now and they used to want to tell me their story about like premature births all the time which Mm. is lovely but I'm like I seriously just need to get around Tesco and get home now (laughs) (laughs) you're all very lovely but I need to just get my shopping done (laughs) but yeah I mean he's gosh he's 24 now and he's like six foot and yeah Yeah. he's he's fit and healthy and he's he's thriving he's doing amazing I'm I'm so proud of him but you know you think of all the things that could have happened to him being born early I feel very 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 grateful so when I look back at being a mum for the first time it's very I would say it's very bittersweet there are elements of it that were just amazing but it's tinged with a little bit of sadness that it was under those kind of circumstances but I wouldn't change it though honestly Mm. Laura I would not change it for the world I learned so much from it as a person um and you said that previously it was a bit controlling the relationship he moved you away um you've just had baby and sometimes not sure if you found this but men get a little bit jealous of baby so how was it after you brought the baby home? How did that affect the dynamics in your home? Um, I think the volatility was always there. It was always there. And having, having a baby was probably like a bit of a novelty for a little while. And then the reality of it kicked in. And I think, mm. I think that's, the, that's the heartbreaking part of it because it's like, did do you really want a baby or did you just want to know 
where I was, what I was doing and keep me, keep me there because the baby thing arrived, you know, we want a baby, he wanted a baby. When our relationship was probably heading towards breaking, like breaking up. So okay. looking, looking back, I sometimes think, did you really, because he's not had anything to do with him since, since he was yeah. about four, very sporadically, he's, seen, he's not been a part of his life. He's now 24 and he's not been part of his life at all. I don't think mm. there are some elements of his life I don't even think people know he's got a son. So that's quite sad. But it was having a baby in terms of the impact it had on the relationship. I think the novelty wore off for him very quickly. So. Does that put a strain on a relationship? Of course it does, because the responsibility lies with me to do the, you know, the majority of everything, waking, doing the feeds, waking up, doing all of that kind of stuff. So I was pretty much on my own. So it felt like being a bit of a single mum anyway, because yeah. it was always me and him, like me and Mitch all the time. It was just us two. We were like a, a little team on our own, you know, and his dad kind of dipped in and dipped out when he felt like it. So it probably done me a favour because it kept me strong enough to be able to break away without it being too much of a shock to the system being a single mum because I was pretty mm. much I was pretty much that most of the time anyway. But in terms of actually being a single mum, the only difference was was finance because again that was something I was beholden to because obviously I had the baby and he was the, he was working. I was mm. beholden to being having to ask money and ask permission to buy stuff and all of that so that was that was really the only change that came after we split up was the financial position that we were in that I, I wasn't dependent on him anymore yeah okay and you said you went back when Mitchell was three months old how did yeah. you do with childcare then who, who had him my mum and support? dad my mum used to look after him so he, she was the only person I'd leave him with because, oh. yeah, and my sister as well. That was it, yeah. So so they used to look after him. Um, my mum used to look after him and I used to, I went back to work. Um, and that was quite hard actually, going back to work at three, at three months. But it was something I wanted to do because I think I knew deep down the way things were heading and I needed to have money and be independent and not com give complete control over to him so I was adamant that I needed to do something um and I did that so yeah I was glad I did that and I worked with some lovely people as well which was really helpful so I remember walking in the first day and just bursting into tears like I'm not ready for this <laughs> but yeah. you get used to it you just have to at the end of the day if you've got to work you've got to work don't you you started back at work again um seems like you've kind of created a plan in your head of how you're going to of how you're going to get out so what exactly made you leave um eventually we came back to um where we lived um we, so we came back to Brentwood um so that I could be closer to everybody um and things just declined um really rapidly with us and um we we had a flat together um, we went away, um, he won this work do thing and we went away to um, America and I found out that he cheated with one of his um, colleagues. Um, so I flew home from America on my own and I got a phone call saying I, I want you and him out of the house, you and the baby out of the house by the time I get back out the flat. So yeah. I left and I went to live with one of my best friends, she was amazing, I went to stay with her 
Um, so me and Mitchell moved in with her into her house because she had her own house and we had one of their bedrooms. She had a spare bedroom. So it was just me and Mitchell in her spare bedroom. Mm. And um, and it was all a bit chaotic. He got back and he was very much like, oh, you know, I want us to get back together. Um, and there was an, an incident um, with a firearm where I got threatened with a gun by him. So that was a bit of a deal breaker for me. Um, in terms of um, it was just an end it was like you need I need out of this this is dangerous and I was very very naive at the time very vulnerable as a young single mum literally didn't want to go back home to my parents because I'm like I'm I'm so used to my independency so I was living with my friend so I was like actually um what what can I do and I felt really limited as about my my options and being quite vulnerable he kind of talked me back into um trying again so we had this I then by that time I'd got my own place I'd got um I was I got a council flat I was given a flat Mm. um and I moved into that flat and naively like being a bit bloody stupid looking back on it now and I, I let him come back into our life and um he went out one night didn't come back I'd been up all night with Mitchell Mitchell was um sick and I was really tired and I come downstairs and I said look can you do me a favor I'm really tired please can you just help me with him because I really need to get some sleep and he'd obviously been out all night and he was doing cocaine or whatever he was used to do and he used to stay out and he just yeah. lost it and assaulted me dragged me up the hallway um hit me and I just heard this little voice saying mom mom and, like, yeah. Mommy. and I was like that's it that's me done he didn't see anything but I heard him he heard me um, yeah. and he was upstairs so that was my deal breaker I was like, you know, there are many, many things you can do to me as an individual, but I will not raise my son in a house where he thinks that this is okay because it's not. And that was it. And I ended it. And I, something in me just snapped. That was it. So I I literally packed all his belongings, put it all in black bags, threw him straight out the door and said, we're done. And that was it. And I, from then, it was, there was threats, it was horrible. It was frightening, it was a really horrible, horrible time. Um, but I got strong and it was just me and Mitchell and we lived on our own and yeah, we were good. We, and my mum and dad were so supportive. My friends were amazing. Everyone just ra- you know, rallied around me and just got behind me and gave me real strength to, to carry on. And one day I was sorting out through my wardrobe and I had um, letters, I had loads of letters in there from um, when I'd met my husband when I was little, like I was 14, 15. Mm-hmm. And I found these letters and I was like, oh my God, I wonder how he's getting on. So um, I wrote to him, I wrote him a letter just to see how life had been treating him. And I sent it to his parents' address. Obviously, the last time, you know, we had any contact, he lived with his mum and dad because we were teenagers. And... Mm-hmm um I sent this letter off didn't really think anything about it and then one afternoon I was just at my flat and and he phoned and I was like because oh, I put my phone on and I was like oh my god how are you like chat 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 and yeah. um we literally we met for a drink in London 
and we kind of were together from there. I went into London with my friend and met him and we met in the Bear and Staff at least pub in London and yeah we were bless you <laughs> and we were together from literally I walked in the pub and I was like I just fell in love with him all over again so it was lovely oh. yeah we were together from that day we've we've literally not been apart from that day in uh yeah all, oh my goodness when was that 10th of June 2000 2000 yeah oh, that's amazing yeah oh, no. yeah so that's how we got together it was my next I did, wasn't looking for a relationship so obviously I'd gone through all of that mm. and the last thing I wanted was a relationship but there was this man that was just my safe haven that I would just he was so familiar from when I was younger mm. and I was like oh my goodness I, I just yeah something just and he felt the same and that was it <laughs> oh, so, wow. oh. There is a happy ever after, even if you do go through some really awful stuff, there is stuff out there that does happen that's lovely. Oh, that's brilliant. So you've got with Paul, it is Paul, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've got with Paul. How did like Mitchell's dad react to that? Or did he did he know? Was he well and truly out of the picture by then? How did that dynamic no, change? We, oh, he just yeah, it was just it kind of we used to get we had phone calls at like two o'clock in the morning sometimes, you know, when we were Mitchell was in bed and we were in bed and he would phone up and be like, Oh yeah, I'm in Brentwood, look, I'm out partying, just really inappropriate stuff. He was quite mm. chaotic. He was he was obviously, you know, going through his own stuff and yeah, it was hard to be on the receiving end of his chaos because he just wouldn't let it lie. Um, mm. He would he would say that he was going to come and pick Mitchell up and then not turn up. And Mitchell would be standing there ready, his little backpack on, waiting for him at the lounge window. And he just wouldn't turn up. So days like that, we would... I remember one time he was standing at the window and he had his little backpack on and he was like, oh, you know, daddy's coming, daddy's coming. And he didn't turn up and Paul's like, do you know what, I've had enough of this. And he's like, well, we get in the car and we just took him to the zoo for the day to oh. distract him. And it was so lovely. But yeah, just it wasn't good. It wasn't a good transition in terms of I think it was when I got married. When I got mm. married, that's when he just disappeared. And I think up until that point, he really thought that he could kind of have an impact on controlling me still. But then mm. I got married and I think he must have realised that, oh, actually, she is moving on. And, you know, and that was it, really, he kind of piled into insignificance. And then when Mitchell was um, 13, he said to me, um, oh, oh, is it right if I contact my dad? And I was like, of course you can. So we sat together and did an email and composed mm. an email and sent it to him saying he'd really like a relationship with him. He'd really like to get to know him. And then nothing nothing back at all so that was quite sad that was heartbreaking for me to watch Mitchell not get a response after all that time I thought that's such a brave thing for him to want to do to reach out to his dad mm. so he did that and then um just before his 18th birthday I said to Paul you know I'm gonna I'm gonna try and contact him again because he's 18 he's gonna be an adult and if there's any part of Dan that still loves him, that still wants to be part of his life, then, mm. you know, we really, really need to kind of try and encourage that. So I sent an email saying, you know, he's going to be 18 
soon in a few weeks if there's any part of you that wants a relationship with him or you know that loves him or wants to be a dad please please reach out to me and let me know and then I can step out of that because he's an adult. He can take that on his, and make his own arrangements and stuff. And um, he did. He emailed back and said, thank you so much for contacting me. I'd love to see him, which was brilliant. And so I said to Mitchell, look, I didn't tell Mitchell what I'd done. I was just like, right, I just need to sit down and tell you something. But I've reached out to him and yeah. he said that he wants to see you. And he was like, oh, brilliant. Thanks, mum and they arranged to go he arranged to go into London and meet him after all of those years and the day it happened I was like oh my god I like I felt sick I was like I want it to go really well I, you know I want this to be the start of something good and Mitchell went off and then I got a phone call um and I was like hello so I'm thinking he's obviously gonna be out all day and I said where are you and he went, I'm on the train coming home. And I was like, what do you mean you're coming home? You've only just left. And he said, oh, he had a meeting to go to. And he spent half an hour with him. And then he said, I've got to go He turned up. They had a, like a Coke like had a Coke in a like, hotel um, lobby somewhere. And then he came home. And, yeah, that was it. And then I think he saw him one time after that. And then, yeah, just nothing. It's just... Yeah, it just wasn't meant to be. Sad, it is sad, but yeah. he, you know, and I just think I'm glad that I'm glad that he tried. I'm glad that we tried because at least as an adult, he got his own answers. Because sometimes I think as a mum, we yeah. need to we need to put obviously you know our own feelings aside for our exes and just go. Do you know what? I don't. Regardless of what I think about you, you're still a dad, and you still should have a relationship. And that's what I did. And it's all very well and good me saying, you know, you need to do this, this and this. As an adult, Mitchell then had the autonomy to be able to carve his own opinions out of his dad. And yeah. unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to. But he got closure. He got closure from it. And I think closure is important, you know, to give that to your children and be able to let them go through their own journey as much as it was painful for me as a mom I was yeah. raging every part of me was just like oh why can't you just be a dad but some people they don't necessarily know how to be a dad or a mum. you know we we assume yeah. everyone knows how to be a parent and some people don't know how to do that they don't they've never had it they've never experienced it so it's really hard for us to expect them to just click into maternal mode it doesn't happen like that for everybody you know and we've just got to respect that that that's his journey if he doesn't want to be part of his life then you know he's just got to crack on and do him and we're here and we've got Mitchell and I'm I'm blessed to have him <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's hard anyway. it was a hard yeah it was a hard journey to go through to watch your child feel that rejection from another parent that was really it it broke my heart I was like oh my goodness because I look at him and just think oh, I can't love you any more than I love you how can he how can he not want that but then I've got to understand we're two very different people so you know our journeys are very different so his his journey of being a dad is very different than mine has been uh, being a mum and talking about being a mum yeah. You've now got an extra three children, so how do you Yeah, just another three, you know, <laughs> three more to throw into the mix. <laughs> but yeah, and then, yeah, Paul and I said I wanted 
I said, I when I had Mitchell, I was like, I don't want any more children at all. But then I realised, obviously, what it wasn't that I didn't want children. I just didn't want that same situation again. So it wasn't that I didn't want to be a mum because I love being a mum. But I said to Paul at the very beginning, if we're going to have children, I want to be a stay-at-home mum. I don't want to have to go to work. I want to be able to be there all the time for all of them. And if we're going to have children, I want four in total. <laughs> and I was like, da-da! Because <laughs> I'm one of four. And I just was like, I loved it growing up. My childhood was amazing. So I wanted that as well. So for my family, I wanted that. So yeah, that's how we ended up with three more. So yeah, magic number of four. Oh, and you said that this, like, the pregnancies with Paul were different to your initial pregnancies. In what ways were they different? Um, I didn't have they... to, well, I, was, um, I didn't have to work. It's quite funny, actually, because when we got married, um, I handed my notes. I was a dental nurse. I became a dentist. Don't ask me why. That's another ADHD thing. So <laughs> I've had lots and lots of different careers, and I jumped from one thing to another because my I'm, I'm quite creative in the fact that I love to try new things, but I get bored really quickly of them, so I move on to the next thing. So I was actually a dental nurse. When Paul and I got married, um, I became a dental nurse. So as you, as you do, <laughs> retail to dental nurse. <laughs> so... Um, when I was working in the dentist is when we were getting married and I, I actually handed my notice in because I was like, oh, I'm going, I'm getting married. So I'm clearly obviously going to have a baby. I'm going to get pregnant on my honeymoon and I have live happily ever after. And that's just going to be me now. And I'm going to be a mum and that's going to be my new path in life. And I handed my notice in, not even being pregnant. I just was like, right, I'm going to have my notice in because I'm going to get married and I'm going to have a baby straight away. I'm going to get pregnant on my honeymoon. And it didn't work like that. It took me ages to get pregnant. So that was just me being over bloody confident as you are so it's like oh for god's sake so yeah I had I had um Fraser in 2004 so I got married mm. actually in 2000 and when did I get married 2002 and no sorry my 20th anniversary is next in August I keep saying it so it's this coming up August next year so I got married mm. in um 20 2002 and I had Fraser in 2004. So that goes to show it took me two years to actually have the baby that I thought I was going to have on my honeymoon. Um, and having him was so different because I didn't have to work. I could sleep when I wanted to. I could yeah. go out with my friends. And I was more grown and I was more settled and I was more secure and I was happy and I wasn't living in fear all the time. So. Yeah. My experience for my next pregnancy with Fraser was, yeah, it was totally different. And then I had, so I had him in 2004, then I had Ellis in 2006, and I had Izzy in 2008. So I had two years between the three of them. And then obviously I had Mitchell as well, and he was still very young and at school. So I had like a small army and mm. I had my people carrier. I went from having like a lovely, um, I had a really nice car to... A people carrier which was a lovely car but like a totally different vibe when you've got you know your dogs and the kids and the luggage and the we were like the Griswolds we just called ourselves the Griswolds on so yeah. ev everywhere we went it was like there was just stuff like push chairs and dog cages and blankets and everything but I wouldn't change it for the world it was incredible I love it still it's different now because they're teenagers mm. I think I'm probably more anxious as a mum now than I've ever been. Because when they were toddlers, 
they were here and you can lock the door and everyone's under the same roof and you can sleep but now I've got one who's moved out who's a police officer so the minute he joined Essex police that was me done I'm like I'm never sleeping properly again for as long as mm. I, live. I don't know what's going to happen to him when he's out on shift so that was a bit of a game changer and then you've got 17 who's out and about on trains and going to meet his mates or going to see his girlfriend. You've got my 15-year-old. Thankfully, he loves being at home. And then Izzy loves being at home. So I've got different dynamics as a mum now. My worries are different. When I was, when they were young, you know, you'd worry about, if you know, all different things like their, their academic kind of achievements and, mm. them, them, you, you know, them being part of a friendship group and then going to different clubs and just navigating early childhood but my anxiety for them now especially I think my work has made me more anxious as a mum purely because I get a lot of exposure to what happens to young people nowadays and then mm. I look at my own children and I just want to wrap them up in bubble wrap and lock the door and never let them out of the door again <laughs> so I'm a bit of a nightmare as a mum of teenagers. I think I was much more confident, confident as a uh, when they were little. Tell us a bit about your job. Um, what, what do you do? What's that? Who's I work for a company called Evolve Intervention, and it's a fantastic company that was set up by um, a lady who called Emma Prince, who was a she was actually a teacher, and her mum was a teacher as well. And she left teaching to set up Evolve because she saw a real need in young people um, from them needing not just academic um, to achieve academically, but to have good mental well-being and, and good mental health. And she saw a huge decline in some of the things that were going on in in schools. Not it's at the school, not not a criticism of the schools, but just young people struggling in that system. So she came away, set up Evolve. At the time I went back to college because my kids were getting older and I was like, I really do, and again, you know, ADHD brain, totally restless, need to do something. I'm always learning. I always want to learn something. I want to learn I can't learn most, well, I can learn a lot, but I can't retain it. So that's my poor working memory. I, I learn stuff as I go. I'm a real kind of hands-on learner. So I was like, what do I, what do I really want to do? Um, and I went to college to study counselling because everyone's like, oh, you know, you're such a good little listener. I don't know how people say that about me because I literally don't shut up talking. So I don't know when I get the chance to listen, but apparently I'm a good listener. So I was like, oh, I can do this. So I went and studied counselling and I met a lady there called Helen who works for Evolve who's Emma's mum so Emma's the founder and director and then Helen was her first employee which her mum was her first employee so her mum came away from teaching and started working for Evolve and you know when you meet somebody and it's almost like the planets align you were meant to meet that person it was like our paths crossed for a reason and we just hit it off and she's just the most both of them have got the most beautiful soul they're just they're just nature's nurturers they just want to help kids that's what yeah. they want to do. they make they want to make a positive difference in kids lives and i was coming to the end of my level 3 in counseling and i i knew that i didn't want to go on and qualify to be a counselor so because I knew they were, I wanted to work with young people and I wanted to make a difference, but I knew my path wasn't counselling. 
And Helen said to me, you really, really do need to meet my daughter. She's set up this company and I think you'd got on really, really well. So um, she got me in contact and Emma came round and for my house for a coffee and she offered me a position working at Evolve Mentor in Young People. And I think that was coming up three years ago. So I've been, yeah, and it, I, it started from there and I do love it. It is an amazing job, amazing organisation. However, I sometimes feel that I still wish I lived back in that bubble where I think the world was all lovely and fluffy and flowers and you know we all live happily ever after because working in early intervention and working with young people probably like you know Laura it's like you get to see a side of the world that you wish wasn't there sometimes because some of the children we work with are really quite vulnerable and they struggle and especially after Covid it's had a massive impact on young people and I think as a mum that's affected me because I was quite confident before, whereas when Mitchell was growing up and he used to go out and do stuff and I wasn't so cautious because I didn't really, I knew stuff went on, but I didn't know the depth and the level of stuff that goes on for young people and the pressures that they're under. Um, so now I do my job. I think sadly for my other three, they've kind of bore the brunt of it because I've just become this really, really protective, over-anxious mum, which, you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of because I just think, actually, that's my job. I'm here to keep you safe. And I'm, not, I'm unapologetically, you know, overprotective and I won't apologise for it. I apologise if I suffocate them, but I won't apologise for wanting to protect my kids from stuff. And, you know, yeah. it's... My journey through my job and motherhood have kind of merged. It's made me a different kind of parent. So I think, you know, your your career choices can impact you as a mum. They really can impact you because it's difficult to not transfer the way you are as an individual at work, especially if you're working with young people onto your children because you kind of see other people's lived experience and go, Oh, and, and I didn't want to become one of them people that was like, oh, you're so lucky. You know, I'm working with people. <laughs> but oh, I find myself sometimes and I'm like, nope, Claire, don't do it. It's not their fault that they haven't experienced that, you know. So I have to be mindful of my job and being a mum as well, because there's a lot of transference that can happen when working with vulnerable young people and then comparing them to what my children have, because, you know, they don't get a choice over what they have. Mm. so do you see like when you're at work do you see the vulnerabilities of those children in your children and that's why you're a bit that bit more protective of what you would have been if you weren't in that job no um I don't see the vulnerability in them in the home in, in our home because they have got a lot of love and nurture and security I see the vulnerability outside of this mm -hmm. like the what young people are being exposed to nowadays and that's the bit that scares me it's you know thank goodness you know we we've got a great family and you know they're very safe and secure but when they step outside and I think that's me that's because I've got a relinquished control over them then the minute they step out that door I can't protect them and we recently had two young people murdered in our town and it's things like that that I'm like Oh, but I've got to keep it in perspective. Realistically, is it going to happen? You know, and, and it's about that. It's, and I know that's my stuff, but, I've, but I'm very good at 
keeping a lid on that being like an anxious mum I'm quite good at keeping a lid on it in the fact that I will never ever let it stop them doing stuff so they I've never say no you can't do so they go out they do their thing I just have to try to talk to them as much as I can about making good choices and being streetwise and 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 let them go you know I'm not I'm not that anxious to the point where I wouldn't let them do stuff they do stuff yeah. but it terrifies me <laughs> yeah I'm like you do stuff but please text me <laughs> oh you do stuff you can do this but these are the rules I've got quite strict yeah. ground rules around you know when you get somewhere make sure you phone or make sure you text me so I am a bit of a helicopter mum in that respect they they aren't allowed to just go out and do whatever they want and come back whenever they want or go to bed when they want At the end of the day they're doing a levels and GCSEs they still have a bedtime because that's my rule because uh-huh. you can't learn if you're tired you can't be productive if you're tired and you know they're oh my mates do that I don't care what your mates are doing don't live in my house do they so in my house you have a bedtime and your phone comes in my room at a certain time and it gets switched off and those are the rules <laughs> I want to give you a high five if Michael could hear you <laughs> that's one thing I've always been strict on really really strict because I just think you know once their GCS once their exams are over you know and they're an adult and they can mm. navigate whatever they want you know they can manage their own sleep and stuff like that however until that point happens then mum's in control, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, we've talked a bit about schooling, a bit about your job. And you said earlier that you homeschool Izzy. How did that come about and how are you dealing with that? And what? Oh, goodness. She went to secondary school um, and she didn't really spend a lot of time at secondary school because of lockdown. So mm. when she was at school, um, she primary school she loved primary school she really really enjoyed it she had lovely friends and she had you know great teachers and she really really she was nurtured at primary school you know there was elements of the school that were a bit ott but that's you're not going to get a perfect school anyway you're not going to get perfect parents it just doesn't exist you know i probably have you know was i overprotective of her all of them probably yeah but you know I make mistakes that's what I do hands up sorry I'm not you know sorry not sorry (laughs) but then she transitioned to secondary school and her two brothers were there already so they were already at the secondary school and she would sit at lunchtime and break time on her own and mm. doing doodling and she wasn't making um immersing herself into school or didn't want to do after school clubs or didn't really particularly want to make friendships and found the whole thing quite exhausting and then we were in lockdown and obviously we started you know they set up the teams and all of that and then sent work home and during lockdown she thrived she done so well she got up every day got showered come downstairs got on with her work and she was so happy and I was like oh my goodness like like really different like fell in love with learning and I I thought it'd be the other way I thought she'd be even less motivated but she wasn't she really really kind of just cracked on with it and I was um when she was gonna she go back to school her anxiety got really bad she started getting really really anxious so upset like not just upset like really upset at the slightest thing so as and I just thought that's quite a normal 
but then the not making friendships kind of I was like oh that's a bit unusual you know most children want to be part of the popularity and the crowds and she just wasn't like it she was just quite happy on her own and with my work obviously working with young people our uh, continuous professional development we do different courses and things like that and I was doing courses on ADHD and autism and there was lots of characteristics that I was learning about, about neurodiversity that sat with her, with the, the way she was and how she profiled as like a, an individual. Yeah. And um, I didn't really kind of act on it or do anything too drastic about it. But her, it was her anxiety more than anything that I was more concerned about. And um, her, she had really big reactions, really big emotional reactions to things that weren't just anxiety because obviously having gone through what I went through I knew what anxiety felt like so I had like quite a lot of empathy for it so I didn't want to force her to be doing stuff that she didn't want to do um so in the end as it was coming back to going back to when they started announcing on the news about schools opening up again she just declined massively and we could see a decline in her and I was like yeah. oh, this is going to be quite hard going so we tried everything we even got when we were going back to the school, you know, the two weeks before, we said that we'll get her guinea pigs. She's always wanted guinea pigs. So oh. like, we'll get her some guinea pigs. So I said, you know, you've got something nice to look. When you go back to school, you've got something nice to look forward to. When you come home, you can play with the guinea pigs. If you've had a bad day, you can talk to them if you want to. If you don't want to talk to mummy, if you don't want to talk to daddy. So we did this and oh, bless her. She went back to school and her mental health just declined so rapidly from being such a happy content little girl in lockdown to yeah. back to school it was horrible she she literally came she cried every single morning going into school it was awful and every single night she was coming home because she was at the time obviously we didn't realize that she was masking all day just putting on yeah. mask all day going into school pretending everything's okay She'd get in, she'd put a onesie on, zip it up and just lay in bed, exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. And I was like, I was felt like I was losing. I was like, my goodness, this is heartbreaking to see the impact that an environment can have on a young person because yeah. it's the right environment. And so I spoke to my GP, we spoke to a pediatrician. She had a referral for ADHD and autism um, going on in the background. And I went upstairs and I, she was laying in bed in a onesie and I said, you know, talk to me, tell me what's going on. Because she was like, didn't want to go back to school. And she just said, I said, what is it about school? She said, I want to be invisible. And I was like, that's, it, it broke my heart. And I was like, why would you like to be invisible? And she said, and I said, if you had one wish in the world, what would it be? And she said that you'd be my teacher, mommy. And I was yeah. like, Oh, wow. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I literally done so bad at school. My GCSEs are shocking. What am I going to I cannot be a teacher. I, was like, I literally mm. cannot, you know, replicate the curriculum. But honestly, Laura, it was the it was the easiest decision I've ever made. When you see your child that broken mm. by the environment, I was like, it's a no brainer. I am not going to send you back. It's not happening. And I said to Paul, I said, it's not happening. I said, she's not going back to school. And he was like, good, good. Because we, we cannot see her carry on like this. We will lose her. Eventually we will lose her person. She will lose her personality. It was like the lights had gone out in her. And I was like, no qualification 
on this earth is worth your happiness. I don't care what anyone says, how academic people have a right to say how they're going to navigate through life. And if education isn't going to work in the way that school works, it works brilliantly for my boys. They thrive, they love it. And they do really well in school, but for her, it just wasn't the right environment. So I literally deregistered her within, I did the template, emailed it, did a hard copy, sent it in and that was it and that was my decision it was that quick and I was like I'm not doing it and the relief in her was incredible is she it took a few months we had to um de-school her because I was like right okay so just give her some time to kind of decompress and process yeah. what's going on so we did that and then I tried, I was like, right, I can do this now. We'll do the curriculum. <laughs> so naively, I went out and got all the curriculum, got all the books, um, set her up her desk, all her folders, you know, all her post-it notes and stickers and all of that kind of stuff. And we did a timetable and it was going brilliantly for a few weeks. And then mm. I just saw that she was doing it. But, you know, when you look at someone and you think, you are getting literally no enjoyment out of this learning whatsoever. And I am not not a teacher. So what I can do is lean into my strengths and help her navigate her way out of this. So that's what, then I chose to do unschooling, which is quite controversial in the UK. In America, it's much more well-known. And especially when you've got, and then she got a diagnosis recently of ADHD and autism and, and now I know that I'm doing the right thing by unschooling her because the school system is is a linear system so it's a very you know it's very black and white and it's quite linear and it's taught in a very linear way in a structured way neurodiversity doesn't fit into that system so because we're creative thinkers and we think differently and sometimes when we problem solve we go the long way around so she needed different things from learning so unschooling is basically it's it's different to everybody some people are radical unschoolers where they don't have any rules at all none none at all which you know is fine it's their journey they do them and I don't judge them you crack on and do but it doesn't work for me I need some rules I'm not going to let my child swear at me I'm not going to let my child you know trash I'm not going to I'm not going to let my child do certain things because I think boundaries are important so we unschool but it's very self-led so it's like self-led learning so our curriculum we let her choose it so we leaned into her strengths what does she enjoy doing so she's now doing um a qualification in um, cookery she does um hairdressing stuff she does um she's doing an animal um qualification in um, animal care she does english and she does maths and she does the prince's trust as well so she does a lot but it's all on it's all based on her interests and the difference in her is incredible, you know, and it's mm. only been, it was a year, the September just gone, and she's learned more because the environment is right for her. She's been able to learn more because one of her fears was putting her hand up and getting something wrong. Whereas mm. when in her environment, she feels safe to make mistakes. And that's good because then she learn from that mistake and she, she learns a lesson from it and goes forward and changes it and learns from it. So, it's, it's been in that it's enabled her to learn differently which has been great for her I'm not making her do any GCSEs at all she's not doing any qualifications she's getting qualifications in other ways so like um 
in ways that where it's like 100% coursework. So she'll, so she doesn't have the pressure of doing that exam. And saying that though, I push her and I push her out of her comfort zone because of um, her autism and ADHD. She has, um, she struggles with um, communication and social interaction. So that's one of the challenges that's kind of really um, played a part in her her anxieties and not pushing her out of her comfort zone. So we now, um, Essex Youth Services, Lady Paul Claire Love, who got her involved in an Empower Her project, which has been amazing for her. And it's about social change and creating social change for women. And mm. it's been amazing. And Claire Love has been amazing with her. She's been very slow with her, took her time build her up so we push her out of her comfort zone but on her terms I won't yeah. let her avoid stuff so when she's scared I don't let her avoid stuff because <laughs> it also means that I'd, I'm not allowed to avoid stuff either so <laughs> we have a saying in this house called getting on your roller coaster because yeah. she was terrified of roller coasters and one day she just went I'm going to go there's a, a roller coaster um in this theme park and it, we've got a caravan in Norfolk and she's it's yeah. called Wipeout and she was like mum I'm gonna go and wipe out today and I was like no you're not you're not gonna go and wipe out and she was like yeah I'm gonna go and wipe out and she did so now the same become get on your roller coaster so every time she's frightened of something or I feel frightened of something we have to get on our roller coaster so if she has to go and you know, be in an environment where she's got to meet other people that are strangers and she doesn't know them and you know she's anxious. Mm. I just go, you can do it, get on your roller coaster. Like she's just had her vaccine and mm. he was a like crying and freaking out and oh I'm not doing it. Can we cancel it? She and then literally I was like, no, you've got to get on your roller coaster. You've got to do stuff in life that's going to make you frightened and you've got to do stuff in life that's going to make you comfortable. Whether you're autistic, whether you've got ADHD, whatever is your hand that you've been dealt in life, you're going to have to step out your comfort zone and you will do it gently and, and supported, but you're going to do it and you have to do it. I've got to do it. Daddy's got to do it. Your brother's got to do it. We've all got to do it. So sometimes you just got to suck it up and get on with it. And that's how we approach it. And she's become quite resilient. So she went and had her vaccine and um, she got a picture of her and she's like all teary eyed. <laughs> and it was just one of those things. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, it wasn't the vaccine. She's frightened. She's frightened of having the injection. So yeah. it was like, you know, you overcome those fears. You overcome fears by facing them. And I don't think that we'd be in the position we are now with her had we not made the decision to remove her from education. And as a mum, it's probably been one of the most empowering things that I've ever done to really hear the needs of my child and act mm. on it. I feel very privileged the fact that I work from home, so I'm able to, because I know there are so many families out there that could benefit from doing the same thing, but they're just not in a position to, to do it. And their child stuck in that school system and they feel terrible as a mum I mean god we feel guilt anyway don't we we feel guilty mm. over everything so it, it's really hard to work with families like that because I've been there with and felt mm. that but I was able to make a decision to take my child out of that system and some of them don't have that choice and that's really hard it's hard to it's hard to hear because mm. some of the outcomes for these young people are very different from what her outcomes have been so yeah that's my journey so far with her with unschooling and it's, it's going well and but I feel really privileged to be able to to do it because I know there's a lot that can't yeah 
Well, Claire, we've gone for a lot, haven't we, in our mm. hours chat today? <laughs> we've met baby Claire from school and we've gone right back to... <laughs> it's my timeline. Really? <laughs> I'm exhausted by my life, actually. I might need to lay down now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been really good. It's been really informative because we've, we've been on your roller coaster, haven't we? Of the ups and downs and ins and outs. Um, but it seems like you've kind of found your bit of balance yeah, at the moment. Definitely. Yeah, it's a good place. It's taken a long time to get here. Um, a lot of personal, you know, personal work I've had to put in as well. I've been mm. you know, in counselling and that's really helped. And having my family around me has helped. And yeah, it's it's been a journey, but I I wouldn't change any of it. I would not change one single day of it because it's brought me to where I am now. Some days I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm coming or going with my own brain, let alone navigating, you know, work and being a mum and all of that on top of it and homeschooling. But mm. I just, I, do you know what? One of the main things I've learned to do is forgive myself really quickly. I literally just, I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your thing. Do what you like. <laughs> I, have, I have a fuck it bucket, Laura. And mm. most of the things that happen to me during the day go in that because I've got to let it go because mm. you can't you can't keep beating yourself up as a mum you cannot keep beating yourself up over every little thing we punish ourselves enough you know so mm. I've learned I've learned to be much kinder to myself and to forgive myself very quickly and throw a lot of things in that bucket so that I don't carry them with me because otherwise I wouldn't have enough to give my children. I wouldn't have enough to give my husband. I wouldn't have enough to give my job. So mm. I pick my battles. I literally pick my battles. And I think if they're worth putting the energy into, I'll do it. If they're not, they go straight in the bucket. So, yeah, so my, it's a nice balance. It's much. It's taken a long time to get here, but <laughs> mm. I'm here finally. <laughs> oh, that's really good. No, that's, that's something that a lot of us can take away. And maybe there'll be more fuck it buckets in people's Yeah, houses. do you know what? <laughs> Every single parent needs one in their life, literally. <laughs> I empty mine daily. <laughs> it gets full up daily and I empty it daily. <laughs> oh. All right, well, we're going to have to start wrapping it up. Okay. So final words, Claire. What can others learn from your journey? Um, I would say follow your gut. If your instinct is telling you something, but your mind is fighting against it, I always follow my gut, always. So my instinct is telling me something doesn't feel right. It might take you a long time to get to the conclusion, but always follow that instinct. If you feel excited by something, act on it. If you feel frightened by something, you know, be cautious. But if it's going to bring good things, then fight, fight through that. And take those opportunities where you can but I think the most important thing that I've learned through all of this is and I say this to my colleague Helen that I was talking about earlier we're very good at reminding each other about you can't pour from an empty cup self-care is so important we put ourselves at the bottom of the pile constantly constantly mm. and we need to be in a good place to look after our children if we're not in a good place, we cannot look after our children in the way that we need to and want to. So it's not selfish just to do some stuff for you, take some time out for you, 
follow the stuff that you want to do you know if you want to mm. go back to college go back to college I was in my well, what was I late 30 no early 40s when I went back to college so isn't I've only just learned now at 44 what I want to do in my job you know I've, mm. done, I've done loads of different things and I might not want to do this in four years five years time I might want to go and be a painter and decorator or do something completely different you know so just forgive yourself very quickly but also be really kind to yourself and follow your instincts when something comes along if you want to do it then just you know take the ball by the horns and give it a go because you'll only regret if you don't and mm. if you mess it up royally and it doesn't become anything like you thought it would be just learn the lessons from it and I say that to my students learn mistakes are the best things because if you make a mistake I look back on my past some of the stuff that I've gone through you make a mistake don't look at the mistake look at the lesson it taught you Mm. something's really awful and gone really bad and you think don't beat yourself up about it look for the lesson in the mistake and go okay that was crap but I'm going to take this and I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to go on and I'm going to do better by it brilliant all right well thank you so much Katie it's been lovely thank you for listening to Claire's Journey If you want to find out more about what we do at the Independent Mums Handbook, then please visit our website, independentmumshandbook.co.uk. I hope you enjoyed the journey with us. Remember to share with your friends. Keep well, Laura.